Hello and welcome to today's seminar on the response to COVID-19 in South Asia. I am Chelsea Farrell, the Assistant Director of the Lakshmi Mental and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the moderator of today's panel, Dr. Vikram Patel. Dr. Patel is the Pershing Square Professor of Global Health at Harvard Medical School and holds honorary professorial appointments at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Patel. Uh, thank you very much, Chelsea. And let me first of all start by welcoming all of you to this uh, webinar. Friends, I think we all know that the lives of billions of people around the world have been completely upended uh, by the COVID-19 virus, uh, not only by the impact of the infection directly on lives lost, uh, but also as a result of the policies that have sought to control its spread, particularly the policies that have sought to control its spread through shutting down to various degrees, social and economic life in countries. Nowhere is this more true than in South Asia, where more than a billion people have now been under a lockdown, which according to the University of Oxford, ranks as the most stringent anywhere in the world. Dr. Sabina Rashid has been working since 1993 uh, in a range of different organizations in Bangladesh, including BRAC, the Grameen Trust, and UNICEF. Uh, uh, Sabina, I actually would want to really hear from you um, about your impression about the impact of these policies that have focused on individual behavior, um, on the social structures and particularly the inequities that are very prevalent in South Asia. Um, is there a differential impact of these policies? And so really drawing on your understanding of the social stratification of South Asia, how do these focuses on individual behavior uh, impact differentially across the, uh, the different strata of our society? Um, and, uh, and, and really what is happening in Bangladesh really? If you could also update us all on the current state of policies and to what extent do you see uh, uh, the, the, the level of constriction of the economy uh, being the price that people will have to pay in order to control uh, the spread of the epidemic? Um, I'm going to speak a little bit from the community perspective. We've been undertaking some rapid surveys around urban rural Bangladesh and also case studies in the slum settlements and amongst the more marginalized groups. Uh, one thing that uh, uh, there's a couple of three areas that I want to cover is the structure of how we understand disease and models of disease. The second uh, point I want to cover is how do people who live in the sort of the bottom of the social hierarchy, economic hierarchy, um, uh, experience these policies. And then finally, uh, what are the implications as we move forward? So one thing is that in Bangladesh, it's in the first time of its own history, there's been such a big shutdown. So you can imagine the magnitude of how people are viewing coronavirus, COVID-19. And this is across all socioeconomic classes. And I'm gonna come back to this point about stigma and fear that's much more widespread. The fear of infection, the fear of dying. Uh, with the poor, it's amplified, it's magnified. They have no social safety nets. All they have is their hands, their feet, they can work, they earn daily. As Richard was saying, and um, Shamika earlier, a majority of our population work and rely on daily labor. If you have a shutdown, which is restricted movement, restricted transport, shutting down educational institutions, I, as someone from a better economic background, can still sit and work at home. For many of the poorest, their entire lives have come to a halt. And the reality of this is that 
when we have an approach, and I agree, shutdown is not an easy decision. I don't have any easy uh, answers, but I would say there's some moral ethical dilemmas we're talking about here. Hunger versus health risks. Hunger versus dying. What would, what would the poor people say if you talk to them? We did a survey of 1,306. I mean, this is longitude and we're gonna continue this rapid assessment. They actually talk about, yes, Appa, I'm scared, I'm nervous, or, you know, and, and the reality is less than 38% of the 1,306 had any clear idea of the symptoms of the coronavirus. So many of them are conflating it with a cough, cold, and fever. So one of the problems with that is that there's a lot of surveillance now of each other and internalized fears of coming out with this symptom and being socially ostracized. So there's a lot of fear around what is corona, what does it mean? Against the whole backdrop of a shutdown that gives reinforces the message that this is a huge, huge deadly uh, pandemic. The reality is we don't know enough. We have low levels of testing. We've got you know uh, reports of deaths that are you know some would argue are probably underestimated. People don't know about the comorbidities. But um, what I really wanted to say is that in public health, it, although it's changing, one of the predominant um, approaches is looking at individual determinants of health. And going back to that whole point about context, we can't take away the contextual realities, the structural and social inequalities of most of these individuals' lives. The rickshaw puller, the garment worker, the daily laborer, they live in conditions that don't allow them to maintain the basic precautionary guidelines, masks, uh, social distancing. You've got 11 members of a family in one crowded room in a very crowded slum. We're one of the most densely populated countries in the world. We can get into debates, well, if we didn't have lockdown, there would be greater spread of transmission. But the reality is they have very precarious lives. And there are various kinds of social disruptions. We see violence, we see arguments, we see social unrest, particularly with relief distribution. Uh, the government has rolled out a national stimulus package with food. It's been slow to start. Uh, there are uh, criticisms around mismanagement. There's also criticisms around food being given to um, all members of the communities, particularly the poor. And there's a lot of criticism that certain groups are being favored. Um, uh, you know, in, in our case studies, we found that many of them talk about where you know you even though you have these lives in these spaces, there's now these uh, frictions and fractures because everyone's competing for resources and now it's for food. People can't work. People are using savings. People are borrowing loans on higher credit. People are talking about um, uh, the the uncertainty of the lockdown because when we first started the lockdown, it was March 26th. It was extended for, 20, uh, for two more weeks under, it's a holiday, and now it continues to be extended. One major issue that keeps coming up is fear and stigma, and this is not just amongst the poor. We have entire streets and buildings shut down under lockdown in many parts of Dhaka City. One person is found to be infected. So if you can imagine at the, the most poorest communities and settlements and poorer rural areas, this is sort of magnified and amplified. So people talked about, I try and hide my cough, or uh, we have stories of people who fled a slum settlements to go back to the village, people who fled villages, their stories and incidences of relatives being dumped if they have um, a suspected infection, 
Uh, and I think one of the real challenges is, and there's a couple, it's a very complex situation. How long can a, a shutdown be sustained in low-income countries while, you know, uh, there are certain steps that need to be taken to control transmission, but how long can a lockdown be sustained when we have different, uh, differential set of sort of pool of resources where most of the poor don't have safety nets and other sectors are getting increasingly affected, you know, business sectors and what is the longer term impact? We're seeing it unfold. And, you know, one of the questions I ask myself when I read through all the transcripts and the survey materials is, what would the community say? Have we ever asked them as decision makers and policy makers? Uh, would they say that, let me work? I'd rather choose to die, but have food in my stomach than die of an illness because everyday life is precarious. They deal with multiple challenges. Dengue is coming. You've got other kinds of health problems. You've got, um, you know, uh, children dying, infant mortality, uh, neonatal death. You've got uh, diarrhea. You've got all kinds of uh, coexisting challenges. So, I mean, I, I think for me, one of the, the questions is when I, when, when I do my research and I look at uh, what, what the narratives are and when I look at the surveys, some of the key takeaway is there is stigma and fear and we need to really address this through health messaging because the shutdown kind of reinforces that. Uh, we don't have a lot of choices maybe. Uh, maybe we have to take these steps because of, of, of uh, to, to contain transmission. At the same time, if food is not given and distributed well to farmers and the poorest, there will be starvation. Uh, if this continues for another couple of weeks or months, if this is not, um, handled in a way that acknowledges that for the poor, health is much more broader. Health is not siloed in the way we've siloed it into biomedical disease and individuals. It's very much integrated health, social, economic is very much a broader health, a broader perspective of everyday life and living. I'd like to leave you with that as my initial thoughts. Thank you.